And I'll just tell you this, because Stu and Zach knew, part of my job was that I wrote the colonel's briefing to the general. So the general of southern Afghanistan, basically, I would write the briefing to that guy for the colonel. And part of that was including the week's intelligence reports. And I would write it, and it would always be really negative, really, <laughs> really bad. And uh, the colonel would be like, hey, uh, Kyle, uh, yeah, that I don't like the way that sounds. Is there any way we can like reward that? Can we take this out? Can we take that out? Can we take that out? And I know that if I was doing that for his brief to the general, well, that means the general then would have to do a brief to the, the four-star in charge of all of Afghanistan, uh, in, in charge of that RISMA, that Resolute Support Mission Afghanistan. And then he would have to give an account to the Congress. So at least at that level, I mean, it's being filtered three times by the time I have to filter it for the colonel. So you know it's getting watered down. This is The Way Podcast. The militias needed to have a heads up that I was coming. I personally think they didn't, you know, like in chess. So that's how deep the addiction goes. I've been incarcerated most of my life. Having a conversation with Bill. They've been given no option, either join or die. Snipers, and it was a military. J. Cole came and hung out most of the choir session. I'm standing at the studio glass looking out into the studio. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com. This is Bill with The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHUS Source at the top of the hour, and also on 90.3 WRIU South Kingston at the top of the hour. Today's topic will be the Afghan War with three former military intelligence professionals who have a podcast dedicated to the topic called the Boardwalk Podcast. We will be talking about the Afghan War today. Don't forget to share the show, review, five-star rating. Every little bit helps. You can find more information at podcasttheway.com. Again, that's podcasttheway.com. In terms of this war, what's your guys' history? How do you know about this topic? Yeah, so I mean, we're all um, we're all uh, former army guys uh, who met each other while we were doing contracting work in southern Afghanistan. So we met in Kandahar when we were actually civilians um, doing intelligence work. Um, before that, though, we were all in the army. Um, I okay. was a uh, Korean linguist, but never actually used it operationally. And uh, oh, so you can speak fluent Korean? Well, I used to be able to. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much anymore. I mean. I can watch some of the cool Korean movies uh, and and pick up some of it, but not too many. He, he can order soju flawlessly. I can order soju, yeah, soju juice. Oh man, yeah. There you go. Sure. Over the summer, but, uh, I had the Duolingo app. I went through yeah, yeah. that for a few weeks, so I basically know Italian. Oh yeah, basically, <laughs> right? That bird is gonna get you if you don't do your. You don't yeah. do your. Uh, oh, I, I had to mute them. Yeah. I got tired of the notifications. Like, I'll I'll resume when I want. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, I was a I was a linguist, and um, the other thing that linguists can do is uh, signals intelligence. So I did signals intelligence collection on um, the MC12 aircraft, uh, which is a kind of like a spy plane, a four man crew. So we, we flew on that in, in Afghanistan, and then I, I did the same kind of thing using drones and um, it just yeah, just worked the Afghan war for like three years in the army, and then got out did uh, did contracting doing intelligence analysis. So. Yeah. So for for me. Um... I I came into the army as an all source intelligence analyst. Um, I was a conventional support guy working with Third Special Forces Group. Did uh, three tours in Afghanistan with them, 
and then I uh, got out and I did contracting with uh, with these guys over in Kandahar in uh, twenty like late twenty sixteen through twenty seventeen, and then uh, uh, they they quit because their uh, their their thirst for blood money wasn't big enough, and I <laughs> I, I kept doing contracting for a few more few more years and uh, and finished in uh, early twenty twenty one. Okay. And then, so I, I joined the army in 2008 as an all source intelligence analyst. I had uh, two duty stations, both of them at uh, what we call the core level. When you have, you know, I think everybody's pretty familiar with, you know, 82nd airborne division, 101st airborne division. I was at 18th airborne Corps, which was their parent unit. And then uh, when I left there, I went to first Corps, which was the parent unit for second infantry division. Um, my experience actually had nothing to do with Afghanistan. My one deployment when I was in the army was to Iraq. And uh, I just happened to be in college when I got out of the army and hated where I lived. And I told my wife, like, I'm going to go to Afghanistan for like a year and a half and just uh, get us out of, you know, so we have no debt and then I can come back and resume school. So that's what I did. I met these guys and it was, um, a lot of fun and a lot of hard work. So that my experience with Afghanistan is uniquely uh, as a contractor only. Yeah, you guys sound like you have different positions. When did you guys meet up? What kind of when did you do the same work? We met in 2016. Um, so, I mean, I, I got to Kandahar and Zach was there. I don't know if Stu was there or not. You probably uh, probably not. You got there before met. me, Kyle. Did I? Yeah. Yep. Well, I, I started doing um, political analysis. So. Um, uh, so, so, I, so I did research on uh, what they call green and white side. So it would be research on uh, like Afghan political and military figures. So our allies. So uh, that's I was digging up dirt on those guys. And uh, whereas Stu and Zach did what they call like uh, like red the red side. So Taliban movements and enemy movements. So so who are our, yeah. were I, allies I at this point in time? NATO well, allies at the time. I mean. Yeah, NATO. Na- any NATO. Well, we we operated under NATO RISMA. So RISMA is Resolute Support Mission Afghanistan. So it includes uh, NATO countries that were involved and in several other countries that aren't in NATO, but were also part of it. I'm trying to think. What are the ones that are not NATO that were part of it? Romania, Australia. They're, they're not NATO, are they? Georgia. Australia is uh, not in NATO. I know that much. Yeah, yeah, just based on location alone. Yeah, but like Georgia, Romania, Australia. I mean, we had several people there. So, um, and then plus our allies in the Afghan government. Well, the government that your tax money, Bill, that your tax money funded, and, and mm-hmm. our tax money funded. Uh, we basically built that entire nation up and supported pretty much everything. So, uh, they're they're military figures. They're political guys. And speaking of money and our taxes, Stu said something about blood money earlier, and. <laughs> I remember, though, I interviewed somebody else about the first undercover operation post 9-11, and he did not like this question, but I'm still going to ask it regardless. How much of Afghanistan do you think was, or do you feel was that conspiracy, say, oil or politicians with money or the military industry complex? So <clears throat> that is a, that's that's a really good question, right? And that's something that we, we saw like when we did our, our little AMA on Reddit, um, one, Afghanistan has like a million barrels of oil total, right? We didn't go there for oil. They don't have enough for it to be economically viable. Um, I would say uh, initially the, the, the reasons were just, 
and we're, we're understood. And we've, we've said as much, right? We all understood and agreed that going in, uh, seeking retribution for those who attacked us was, was fair and reasonable. Uh, I think once you had that pivot to Iraq and that lack of focus or that lack of attention on Afghanistan, you certainly had the, the military industrial complex, you know, the, the companies like Raytheon and Boeing and companies we worked for, BAE, I'll throw them out there, Khaki, who had a had a financial interest in essentially supplementing the war effort by having contractors out there instead of soldiers. Um, so I do think at, at one point, it, it certainly transitioned to, and, and at least in my opinion, a lot of influential people on K Street more interested in, in filling their pockets and, and using gullible members of Congress for that. But uh, it, it's not like we went there with the sole intent of making members of the Raytheon board of directors extremely wealthy. What basically en- enabled them to <clears throat> to sh- enable them to start start moving that direction and start lobbying Congress to essentially use Afghanistan as kind of like a testing ground for like new like you know new toys and the the uh, military industrial complex was after after attention moves away from Afghanistan to Iraq well we still had people in Afghanistan through the whole 20 years even though you know people weren't really paying attention to it and we shifted from trying to defeat an enemy to trying to build a nation and those nation building efforts while you know they sound they, they sound good. It sounds nice to try to build up a democracy in an area that you, you know, defeated the previous government ultimately was short-sighted and um, didn't, we, we didn't have the proper tools in place to do that. And so in lieu of having an actual winnable mission, all of these military industrial complex uh businesses kind of came in and said, Hey, well, you know, if you're going to be there anyway, you might as well be dropping our bombs. <laughs> and that, that's kind of where that went. What I heard was a theme was early on. We actually maybe like even did great in the war. We won, we got exactly what we wanted. We had the option to sign this deal with the Taliban. And then right after that point is just everything going downhill, downhill into the mess we have 20 years later. Yeah, we wiped the Taliban. I mean, well, we didn't wipe them out. We we took them out. They, they were no longer the government, and it only took a few months. You know, it took early into 2002 to really do that. I mean, by December, I, I mean, they, they had pretty much surrendered. Um, but Afghanistan, it, it's a strange culture that, that we were not really prepared to deal with at the time. So um, there's a whole lot of stuff about, like, you can't feel like you lost when it comes to negotiations. Um, so... Uh, I mean, the Taliban has basically surrendered to us. Uh, I mean, bin Laden was still nowhere to be found in 2001. But, it, I mean, and that, and that wasn't good enough, you know. So that was not, not good enough for us. It wasn't good enough for the the Taliban, really. So Taliban kind of went into, uh, kind of disappeared for a little while, actually. And yeah, uh, came, saw, back, came back with a vengeance. I saw the deal included, them handing over Osama. But at the time, they just didn't know where he was. That that's around the time that he was making his his move out out of the country. Um, he was by that point up in eastern part of Afghanistan, up in Nangarhar, uh, Kunar, Nuristan area, which is highly mountainous, like where the Tora Bora passes. Uh, so I mean, even if they 
So one, I, I, I think it's fair to say that the Taliban couldn't hand him over because it's not like they had any sort of control over where he was. Um, and, and two, they probably wouldn't have, uh, when you look at Mullah Omar, the, the, the founder of the Taliban, uh, very strict at, you know, adherent to what they call Pashtun Wali, the way of the way of the Pashtuns. Right. And like Kyle's talking about, you know, nobody can come out of a negotiation on the, on the losing side, if you will. He, he probably doesn't make that deal because he has, you know, the, the, he's obligated to be, uh, to show hospitality towards bin Laden, right. Who, who came and helped him or has helped, has helped fund Taliban operations up to that point, built him a complex down in Kandahar that we turned into a CIA operating base, right. There's, 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 there's some debts that are owed, if you will, and he wasn't going to turn him in. Although there are some conflicting stories that he may have almost reached the breaking point that he would have, but he still didn't have access to bin Laden to turn him in. Gotcha. Yeah, like it's one of those things where in hindsight, we now know that the deal would have been the better choice. But at that time, it's too quick. We're doing so well. It even seemed like a good choice to not make this deal. Yeah, I mean, at the, at that time, you have to you have to understand. You still have the anger and the fervor from nine eleven, like that. That people forget how long that that stayed with us, and I mean, it still it still stays with a with a lot of you know older members who served throughout both of the wars through you know much of their duration. But on on top of that, we were we were basically walking on cloud nine. We just defeated the enemy, and you know. The, the Taliban, when they were defeated, they really didn't reemerge in any large numbers until like 2006 in Afghanistan. So that's that's how soundly the the enemy was defeated. And so if you're at the time with the information that you have, not knowing it's going to take 20 years to to deal with it and eventually move out in what I think we would view as a as a losing situation for for everyone you're you're there's no real incentive to to give up what you've what you've taken so we see the afghanistan war starting with 9-11 right after that we go in we start this war but what led to that like what even pre-9-11 what starts the afghanistan war before the afghanistan war even starts well so afghanistan had just come out of a really really bad civil war so um the russians pull out i mean everybody knows the russians were there in afghanistan if you've listened to the billy joel song right <laughs> and uh so, so love Afghan, that song yeah it's pretty good uh, we didn't start the fire for anybody that's not so inclined but um so, so the russians leave and, and that leaves a very weak backed soviet backed government and then the soviet union collapses and it's basically just warlords now fighting for control so the mujahideen that we had basically funded in the 19 uh 1980s um had basically gone off into their own little like warlord uh you know factions and and those factions were fighting over control of kabul they were shelling kabul every day they were i mean bombing uh bombing civilians um doing horrible, horrible things. Acid on faces, if you look at uh, Goldbud and Hekmatyar. I mean, just horrible stuff. And um, so, so Afghanistan had been through this period of massive civil war. So uh, some correcting force, usually when, when these things happen, there's usually a correcting force that comes along. And, and that just happened to be the Taliban, a uh, group of 
uh, students that were trained, you know, in, in the madrasas in Pakistan, crossed back over and started bringing, you know, a form of Islamic justice back to the country by hanging these warlords from the barrels of tanks, shooting them, whatever, rescuing people they had captured and basically winning the hearts and minds of people, especially in southern Afghanistan. So um, the Taliban is basically they take over as the government of basically southern Afghanistan because they still had a lot of resistance in the north. And, um, you know, they're the official government. So uh, and and, and during that time, they start allowing other, you know, very uh, radical Islamic ideas into the country. Uh, as, as a place to, you know, in exchange for money and, and funding, like I think Zach talked about earlier, uh, they let them operate there freely in Afghanistan. And that's what basically starts this, the idea of these terrorist training camps. You remember growing up, right, you see these videos of guys, you know, on monkey bars and stuff like doing these monkey bars in the middle of the desert. I mean, that's that, that that's there. I mean, that's there in the middle of nowhere, Afghanistan. So it basically just becomes a very permissive environment for these people to operate. And, um, and you know, that's where we traced you know, Bin Laden and his, and, and his group and everything too. But it's important to note that none of those hijackers were actually Afghan citizens. So always keep that in mind. Yeah, 17 of 19 were from war. Saudi Arabia. Yeah. 17 of 19. Who we sell weapons to, to this day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, it's important to note that um, Osama Bin Laden spent a lot of his uh, sort of formative years in Afghanistan um, working with the Mujahideen and trying to support their fight against the Soviets. And so after after that war ended, he became one of the biggest allies to uh, Mullah Omar and the Taliban as a whole. And he provided for them financially. He, you know, as, as people know, he was, uh, his father was what a, a millionaire or billionaire potentially. And he was essentially trying to work very closely with him. And as the uh, environment in Afghanistan was fairly safe for him, um, he um, operated out of there following um, him getting pushed out of uh, other other countries for various terrorist acts. And so he was able to use Afghanistan as a staging point to uh, plan nine 11. And that led into the whole war. I think I remember hearing this, but Afghanistan's the one that technically we shouldn't even have invaded. They weren't really the culprits of this. Well, they, 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 they were they housing this environment. Yeah. They gave a permissive environment for people like bin Laden to live and, and obtain safety and refuge. So, yeah. I mean, Exactly. I mean, but you have to ask that question: like, was the was this wrath met out, you know, on the on the right people? So that no, that's a that's a great great question, right? Because it leads to the bigger topic of this was a unique war effort, right? We've always well, we did we haven't declared war since World War II, but whenever we go and 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 conduct warfare upon somebody, it's always against the nation, right? This was the first one. Um, like even the Vietnam wars against the North Vietnamese, right? This is the first war where it's like, we're going to go against, you know, we're going to target uh, radical Islam. Well, that's pretty broad. Like that, that can mean almost anything, right? When you look at the authorization for use of military force that allowed us to go to Afghanistan and then the subsequent one that allowed us to go to Iraq, it's, it's very, they are very, um, there's a lot of ambiguity, right? As, as to, who the enemy really is, which is why I think Sheila Jackson Lee, who is a congresswoman from Texas, was the only person who voted against the authorization to use the military force for Afghanistan. 
And her reasoning, and she is completely vindicated 20 years later. Her reasoning was ultimately that uh, it's too ambiguous. It's too broad. It doesn't identify really who the enemy is. And so she voted no on it. And, you know, we use that authorization of use of military force to ultimately fight what, guys? Like a dozen different groups in Afghanistan over 20 years, give or take. I know there's been multiple, like there's uh, the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or ISIS. By giving it such a broad title, by saying we're going to war with extreme Islamic terrorists, what has been the consequence of that broad title versus a more specific one? Go ahead, Zach. Yeah. The, the, the consequence, so I'm going to use World War II as an example. Um, I know it's really easy to do, but I'm going to do it anyways. When you look at our, you know, our effort there, we had desired end states, clear, concise goals. And we didn't have goals with the, what, what we call GWAT, the Global War on Terror. And we still don't really have goals. That's been the biggest issue, Bill, because when we go to Afghanistan, okay, we're going to go to Afghanistan and we're going to uh, seek retribution and, and you know decimate Al-Qaeda. Did that in six months. Okay. Uh, well, what what next? I I, I well, I mean, let's go ahead and uh, let's let's get rid of the Taliban. Did that before we got rid of Al Qaeda, right? So that's done too. So now what? Uh, well, I guess under the guise of the authorization and use of military force to combat radical Islam, let's build a nation, right? That that's that's what happened. Like that that overuse, if you will, was very early on in the war because we were really successful really early, and so. It happened when, like Stu said, there's still a lot of fervor and anger regarding 9-11. I think people just, you know, turned a blind eye to it because they just saw progress, you know, being progress for the sake of progress. Gotcha. Yeah, Another I mean, issue too, like, Bill. Okay. Yeah, oh, sorry. Is is that you would um, you would use the full force of the United States military to basically deal with small tribal conflicts uh, because the United States early in the war aligned themselves with several different warlords in the area, people like Galaga Shurzai and Kandahar. Who, or you know, John Muhammad Khan in Aruzgan, who uh, became buddy buddy with the United States, which gave them and their buddies contracts to do things like I don't know, provide bricks or provide gravel, you know, for military bases. In exchange, they would provide us with the names of people that they deemed, you know, supposed terrorists, right? And that's air quotes there for people listening, supposed terrorists, but really just people they didn't like. And so <laughs> they, they'd give us the names of people, and this happened all over the country. And all of a sudden, you got Green Berets kicking your door in at 3 in the morning with weapons, and you don't know what the hell you did. Sorry, I guess that's swearing. But, uh, that you passes. don't know what you did wrong, right? And, uh, well, you probably didn't do anything wrong, except you made John Muhammad Khan mad like 10 years ago, and he's now using the United States military to take his anger out on you. And, and, we, and we just went with it. Right? We went with it all the time with like very little research. Uh, we just had an interview with a green beret there early on. And he, he's like, yeah, we didn't really vet that stuff, you know? <laughs> and it's just, it, 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 yeah, you just did it. You just did whatever these people told you. Cause they, they acted all nice to you. And, uh, we, that was, that was another problem with all that force too. And, and when it, when it comes down to it, like the, if, if, if we're, if we're looking at the, the results of all this action, well, Al Qaeda is, you know, stronger than they've ever been right now. They have, they have a wide berth. Um, they have several different um, sects that operate in different areas of the world. And uh, I, I mean, I mean, we had, we had ISIS rise up in, in Syria and Iraq. And it's, it, 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 it seems like without, without having clear goals and a, uh, precise like 
direction that we're that we're heading besides as soon as you know groups pop up to a certain level we'll send the u.s military after them we really don't we, we, we don't we don't seem to know what we're doing <laughs> that's a that's a that's a really big issue when you're talking about a huge organization that you know is sapping tax dollars to try to fight an enemy that you know oft, oftentimes gets created as you defeat other enemies because you have to you have to remember a lot of these, you know, radical groups, you know, a, a lot of a lot of radical groups don't start off having like global Islamic ambitions. A lot of them start off as like local um, insurgent groups that are trying to, you know, that have issues with maybe their government or, you know, even their their you know local government that they that they want to resolve. Well, you know, if the U.S. decides to to move in and say, well, you're now the enemy under this grand, <laughs> grand umbrella of the global war on terror. Well, that also leaves a, uh, a, a sort of, sort of backdoor in for groups like Al Qaeda to move in and support them. And suddenly they've gained another branch. The Taliban was born out of a village level dispute. Now they run the country. <laughs> so how do you avoid that? Like if, you're America. How do you prevent a small dispute from growing like that? I don't think you do. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you can. just just what, what's your role? What's your role in dealing with it? You know, I mean, we have to ask that question every step of the way. Like, is our role to 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 to? Sorry, there's some train coming by. Is our role to mete out vengeance for 9/11? Is our is our role to build an entire nation? So, I mean, you got to question that. Yeah, and that's where that murkiness it, comes. is. is it... Go ahead. Sorry, sorry. I, I, I keep interrupting you, Bill. This is this is your show. <laughs> well, right, it's but, four um, people, yeah, so I, it's very difficult to know when anyone's speaking. So no problem at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's it, it's tough, right? Because I'd I'd like to think that a lot of people in in positions of power in the U.S. and in like the various intelligence services, especially the CIA, like. At some level, they have America's interest at heart, but the problem is, is that we don't, we're we're not using like long term planning to, to really develop our strategies. Like if you look at Libya, for example, hey, Gaddafi was a, a horrible person that did you know terrible things to his people. We removed him, and now there's literal like human chattel slavery auctions going on in Libya because of the absence of his power. If you look at Iraq, you know, yeah, Saddam Hussein was an absolutely brutal tyrant for his people. And yet he kept a lot of those groups that we would we would look at under the umbrella of the global war on terror as terrorist groups in check. And with, you know, with him out of the picture that left that sort of paved the way for ISIS to come in and take over. And in fact, a lot of the senior members of ISIS were senior members of uh, Saddam Hussein's military back in the day that sort of switched over to an insurgency and, you know, terror aspect when they, they lost their positions of power. And then even to, to, to add on to what Stu's saying about Iraq, when you look at the, U.S. you know national interest perspective, removing Saddam Hussein in the country that's actually uh, Shia a Shia majority country, Iraq now has stronger relations with Iran than do with Saudi Arabia. And as much as the three of us have have you know criticized our relationship with Saudi Arabia, like we can 
establish you know the rules of realpolitik and say that it's in our best interest as a nation to have Iraq be more you know be more aligned with Saudi Arabia than they are with Iran. And right now they just aren't right. They're aligned with Iran, which means those Iranian-backed militias are uh, more influential. We I mean we just saw right the IRGC, the Iranian Special Forces, released a, a little video that they're chucking rockets at the U.S. consulate up in Erbil in northern Iraq. That's not going to happen if Saddam Hussein's in power because the IRGC and Iran won't have that influence in the country to do that. Gotcha. Okay. So even when somebody's a bad politician or bad government, whatever, if they have that power, they can still resist a lot of stuff that could grow into something exponential. I get that. And a lot of poor choices have been made. It seems like is the common theme from, say, your positions to either the people below you or directly above you all the way to the top. How are these decisions made? <laughs> oh man, that's a that's, great question. That, that, that's something we, yeah, that's something we delved pretty pretty heavily in, into throughout our podcast. Um, okay. Well, let, let's look at it at the at the tail end of the war when we were contracting. So we're we're out there, and I, I made the joke earlier about blood money. We like to we like to joke that we're basically like mercenaries, like like come coming out to a to a war zone. But we we were we were trying to win the war you know, when, when we were there and the, the issue was that every time we tried to put up a, an assessment that didn't go along with the, the, the commander, um, the commander's view and the commander's view is always that he's winning the war and that the guys before him were doing things wrong and that things are going fine now. Whenever we put up an assessment that seemed counter to that, like, hey, sir, we're uh, we're losing the, you, you know, we, we're keeping the big cities, but we're losing the rural population and the Taliban control this district and, you know, they're, they're moving in to control other areas. That's not good for a um, high-ranking person's career. You, 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 and that, that's sort of what Afghanistan turned into is that uh, a lot of guys at the upper level simply wanted, from our perspective, they simply wanted to come in, do their time at running the country essentially and, and running the war and get out, go to their next promotion, eventually retire and get on the board of Raytheon. <laughs> and so we, we'd, we'd continuously see our assessments get cleaned up to sound better as they moved up the chain. And by the time they make it to Congress, Congress is hearing, oh, Taliban are staring defeat in the face. Um, <laughs> everything's fine. And uh, we're, we're doing great. And so that, that, that's as, as a, as a U.S. citizen, you'd probably, probably if, if you're, if you're paying any attention to the war at all, you'd basically hear like year after year that oh, we're, we're about to win this thing. That's probably the perspective a lot of Americans had is that, oh, we're, we're about to win. We're about to win. We're about to win. Well, that went on for like 10 years <laughs> and, and, you know, there, there wasn't any end in sight until there was. And, and we, we saw how that, how that turned out in, uh, in August of last year. And that was another later question I actually had too, was in what ways is our perception right or wrong? Like, I guess you kind of answered it with, we think we're always about to win, but say like the news and what they tell us or even just rumors spreading around, how accurate do you think the average person knows the Afghan war? They don't. I don't think they know it at all. I mean, <laughs> I don't. we barely knew it. We were there. <laughs> 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 I 
Uh, I, I no, can't imagine like the average person because it, it gets filtered so much by the time it gets to them. There was a, yeah. a, a an article I saw that um, was talking about coverage regarding uh, our news coverage regarding Afghanistan. And the uh, I think he said like the average year was something like under 10 minutes of news coverage for a, for a good stretch of a couple years, pretty much up until we dropped a giant bomb in Nangarhar. Uh, that killed like 170 members of the Islamic State of the Khorasan province. Like up until then, we just didn't talk about Afghanistan. And then that happened. We talked about Afghanistan for about a day or two, and then we didn't talk about it again until August 15th. Yeah, and I, I think I think you know the in, in terms in ter- solely in terms of news coverage um, and and other things. I guess the the Iraq War really did a disservice to to, to the Afghan War and. In, in, terms of like people's understanding of it. Like I'll, I, even when I was deploying to Afghanistan, I'd, I'd call up like my, my dad and be like, Oh, Hey, yeah, I'm up, up in the mountains. You know, this is, this is pretty neat. He'd be like, Oh, I thought it was a desert country. And I was like, no, that's Iraq. Like <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a lot of, a lot of misconceptions people have about the Afghan war kind of carry over from their perspective perception of the uh, the Iraq war which is which is why why we uh, we we get a lot of questions about like oh well was was the war in Afghanistan for oil it's like well if you're going to make that argument about anything it might be for for Iraq but not like Afghanistan has nothing to do with oil at all like Zach said there isn't enough there to to care about gotcha earlier you guys said that you guys don't even know what's going on with the war like with the filtering and stuff what like what kind of perceptions did you have? Was it just your focus on this area? So you you're like an expert on this little niche right here at the time, and there could be something going on two miles away that you have no idea about. Uh, I, I was just kind of being hyper hyperbolic there, um, but um, yeah, we, we generally knew that things weren't going well. Um, but yeah, we were very specialized. I mean, you know, we'd be given a very particular set of things to to look at and to analyze. Um, but it didn't take a genius to read one day's worth of reporting to know that we weren't winning the war. And the, and the issue was that, um, cause we'd, ref- we'd report to, uh, the intelligence section, the J two, the, we'd report to the Colonel. That's, that's who, that's who we reported to. And every morning we would have a brief and we would all go sit there at a, at a war room table, just like something at a Dr. Strange love. And we'd all sit around and, uh, tell him the news of the day. And, and, <laughs> and the news of the day was never good, man. It was never good. To the point of like, um, they'd be like, okay, okay, okay. And then, and I'll just tell you this, because Stu and Zach knew, like part of my job was that I wrote the colonel's briefing to the general. So the general of Southern Afghanistan, basically, I, w- I would write the briefing to that guy for the colonel. And part of that was including the week's intelligence reports. And I would write it, and it would always be really negative, really, <laughs> really bad. And uh, the colonel would be like, hey, uh, Kyle, uh, yeah, that I don't like the way that sounds. Is there any way we can like reward that? Can we take this out? Can we take that out? Can we take that out? And I know that if I was doing that for his brief to the general, well, that means the general then would have to do a brief to the the four star in charge of all of Afghanistan, uh, in, in charge of that RISMA, that Resolute Support Mission Afghanistan, and then he would have to give an account to Congress. So at least at that level, I mean, it's being filtered three times by the time I have to filter it for the colonel. So you know that you know it's getting watered down. So I hope, I hope that answers your question, but yeah, we knew it was bad. Uh, the, you know, the Colonel knew it was bad. I'm sure that general Nicholson, when we were there, he knew it was bad too. 
but you can't say certain things because then your um, your evaluation report doesn't look very good at the end of the day. So you alter it and hope that you're not the one holding the bag. <laughs> that's pretty much that's pretty much what it is. Gotcha. No, that does make complete sense. In terms of corruption going on in Afghanistan, I heard there was a theme of ghost soldiers. Yeah, so so Af- Afghanistan yeah. is the one of the most corrupt countries in the world. I think th- I think they were straight at the bottom for the majority of the war, and then like towards the end of the war, they moved up four slots, so they were only the fourth most corrupt country in the world. Um, <laughs> yeah, Afghanistan has a is a. In, in our experience of it has a very long history of m- money getting sent from the U S and filtering down to all of the, uh, the different power brokers as they went. And so for your specific issue, the ghost soldiers, what would happen is say you have a, uh, say, say you're like a battalion commander in the, uh, the Afghan national army you get paid or you you receive a certain amount of uh, monthly pay for your guys every month and that money has to make its way down to your guys however you yourself can pocket some money if you say that you have a certain number of guys when you actually don't so so what would happen is some of these uh some of these companies and platoons would have maybe maybe half their number of allotted soldiers but on paper it would show that they had a full contingent of soldiers and the guys above would basically just fill their pockets with the the pay for the soldiers that didn't exist or the ghost soldiers sorry this is a basic question but this was our troops like our afghan afghan soldiers yeah Yeah, we're talking all afghan army i mean ours is pretty much by the books because it's just I mean, we're a first world military. They know exactly where you are at all times for the most part. But like, I mean, it was so easy for an Afghan battalion commander to just cook books because nobody, no American is going to go check and count like his troops, you know? So you just like, you just pay them out based on the number they say they have. When they have half the number, they just pocket the rest. And heck, they, they, they pocketed the money for people that were actually employed. Like yeah. it, it was not uncommon at all for soldiers to not receive all their pay. It would all be skimmed off the top by their, you know, commanders. That was that was very common too. Even if you weren't a so good soldier, th- yeah. that that brings up a good a good um, a a good point, Bill. Like when we talk about paying the Afghan uh, National Defense and Security Force, uh, at one point towards the end, when the three of us were there, we were actually spending money, and I don't I don't say this to sound like a jerk, but we were spending money trying to create like, you know, ETF electronic, uh, transfer of funds, right? Like, like we do here in America in a country that barely has internet in a country that barely has any money. You know, you look at Afghanistan's, uh, GDP, I think 80% of their GDP pretty much since GWAT started has been, uh, in like, you know, humanitarian aid and assistance. And so we have a, we have a, a country where, you don't have the the infrastructure for electronic payments, and we're spending money trying to do electronic payments, which in theory is a good a, a good idea to combat the the ghost soldier problem. But it still would have existed. It, it's nothing for somebody in Afghanistan where documentation is optional to create a second you know bank account under a fake soldier's name or anything like that. Like it, it it would have persisted either way. 
it, it is ultimately what I'm saying because the the country is, you know, to an extent, like like Stu said, right? It's like the fourth most corrupt country on the planet, and it, it's probably going to be for the foreseeable future. And then you you factor in um, people who have that ability to uh, grift, if you will. They're going to do it, especially in a place where the average person makes six hundred U.S. dollars a year. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you can't blame him at that point. That's kind of, I covered like a lot of Central America and Africa and a lot of corruption there. And the common theme is you almost can't blame some of these people because it's either you act corrupt or you starve. Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's all of the, it's all of the officer class. Oh, so they don't guys even. that were, that were the most corrupt, like the, the, the guys at the very low end of the totem pole. So, so an example of like low end corruption would be a couple guys on a checkpoint, like taking taking money from like the Taliban as they're moving their their hashish or their uh, their opium from from the country to like Pakistan. Um, they they might they might get you know some of that money, but in, at the end, you know, the officer that's in charge of them is going to be getting his cut of it as well, <laughs> and, and and that'll that'll kind of keep keep going up the line, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there's there's a lot of factors that play into it. Number number one, like Zach said, is like it's a horrifically poverty stricken country that is very decentralized. Most people are subsistence farmers. Um, fun, funnily enough, we spent every single year I was there. It seems we spent humanitarian efforts trying to teach them uh, animal husbandry. Which, which is uh, uh, basically like like livestock herding, which they already knew how to do, but but that's probably, that's probably a different topic. But it, it's it, it was awful, and at, at the very top levels, there were there were men that became millionaires off of the Afghan war by by skimming money the right ways. Actually, I kind of want to bring it towards the culture. Like, what were the people like? What was your experiences like? Well, I mean, most of my deployments were spent either in a spy plane or uh, collecting intelligence uh, or analyzing intelligence. So I didn't really have much interaction with the population outside of a couple of meetings with some governors and, and high ranking people who would tell you what you want to hear. Um, as far as like interaction with the average person, not not too much interaction there. If you're going to see that, you're going to see most of the teams, you know, uh, you, you probably need to talk to a lot of the teams that went out and uh did like village stability operations. We had a interview with a, uh, well, we had an interview with a special forces operator uh, that'll go live on Saturday. Um, and he was there early in the Afghan war. He had to train the, the militias that would fight the Taliban. And recently we had an interview with a, an Afghan born interpreter who went back and, and she was translating Pashto in these village stability operations. So she would actually have to go out and interact with the populace and provide medical care and deal with them and, and their, and their thoughts toward them. So I, I just don't think we're the, we're the people that, that are going to be able to answer that question too, too well, to be honest. Yeah. On, on like an academic level. Um, so uh, Zach mentioned it earlier. Um, all of, all of uh, Afghan life is founded on this principle called Pashtun Wali. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of rules that come down to it. It's basically their code of honor for, for uh, life. And a lot of it has to do with, with like, uh, if, if you take, if you take someone in, um, there's a, there's a code of hospitality where like, if you, if you give someone shelter, you absolutely can't 
turn them over and that that's shown in that uh in that movie and and book uh lone survivor uh, if you've ever seen seen that the guy the navy seal gets um injured and a village takes him in and the taliban want to come get him and the villagers actually fight off the taliban because pashtun wali is so ingrained in them that they they won't let a, a greater force try to try to hurt a guest and, th- and there's also things in there about uh about like uh, blood feuds and things like that and you know matters of honor and so that's the the interesting thing about Afghanistan, as opposed to like Iraq or a lot of other um, Islamic countries, is that Pashtun Wali comes first before before like your Islamic beliefs in general, and so they kind of have a a different a different view on things in that regard. Gotcha. Yeah, I saw that movie a while ago, but now that you mentioned that, that does make sense. I do remember that part of it. I mean, even with wars going on today, when we look at the TV. We see it, and when I go through social media, I'll see it, and I'll see this or that, and I think, oh, wow, that looks bad, and I try to emphasize as much as I can, but it's just sort of impossible to fully understand the severity of something going on. Did you guys have a like an O-blank moment for the radio? can't swear, but like an O-blank moment when it dawned on you, like, oh, this woke me up? Yeah. I'll tell you, because like my, my deployment in the army um, when I was actually in and in the spy planes, I mean, I, I'd be handed a list of targets that I had to go look for that day. Right. It was very simple. And we'd find people and we report their locations or you'd, or you'd hit them with a missile or something. I mean, it, was, it was very simple. I mean, at the end of the day, it was like, here's here's your objective and here's what you're going to do today. That's a mission. Right. Well, and then you get to working in Kandahar and you start to see, you know, the you know, at a high level and, and you start to see this how how little all that mattered you were like okay here's all these missions that i put my time and effort into every single day and i put all this work and 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 thought process and 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 put my put my life on the line and my crew every day we get in that you know crappy plane that barely flew and we we would go we go around and 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 we saw how little it mattered and just how bad off it was it was like once you see it from a high like i guess strategic level you're just like oh man we are not only we are absolutely losing this for what it matters, right? And, and we talk about it on the podcast a lot. It's like, it's easy to kill people. It's very easy to kill high value targets. That's that's not hard. Uh, we have we have the tools and, and techniques and the people that can do that. But what's really, really difficult and, and really, I guess, with all, the whole objective of it was to build that country back. And there was no way we'd ever succeed. Once you, once you read even your first report, once you read your first... Uh, cigar uh, afghan reconstruction report you, you know it's over and and that's a frustrating kind of oh blank moment when you're like oh all that killing all that violence i mean for what for, for what you know that's that's what hit me i think for for me it was when i got there uh, and, and like i said right i didn't have any afghanistan experience prior to getting there as a contractor but I got there, and I think the the total number of uh, forces on the ground was under twenty thousand, and and we've talked about it. I know we talked about it in the AMA on Reddit, and we'll talk about it some more over the next however long we do our podcast. But you know, counterinsurgency doctrine dictates a ten to one advantage because you have to take into account civil considerations and things like that. Well, the Taliban, if we were to give them a, you know, a, a modest estimation on fighting strength, 
is around forty to 50,000. And we had 20,000 U.S. pairs of boots on the ground. Uh, and that was my O Blake moment, right? Getting there and going, I'm, I, I want to, I, I do believe in, in what we're doing. And the three of us do, we, we did believe in what we were trying to do, right? Like it's, it's not like we went there and said, eh, it's all about the money. Like it, we, we did, we were there trying to help this government and help these people. And then you realize just the resources aren't being uh, put there or aren't, aren't being expended in order to actually accomplish the, the objective. So that was, that was my O Blake moment when I when I got there and I kind of got read up on what was going on in Afghanistan and about 3 months into being there I'm like this is this is probably not going to work but let's keep trying. Yeah, yeah, I'm with, yeah, I'm, with I'm with Zach there. I I I left so so I had I had uh, three deployments to Afghanistan as an enlisted man and I, I left those with a fairly positive outlook on the war because I was I was working with an SF unit and they were they were killing a lot of bad guys and I thought okay well we're we're killing a lot of bad guys you know it has to be has to be going pretty well but as as the war dragged on later and later on we kept pulling back more and more troops from Afghanistan like that 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 was that was the big thing with like the tail end of the Obama presidency and. Uh, and Trump's presidency was we continuously pulled back resources from from the country to you know stave off the end of the war as it turned out instead of instead of trying to trying to win the war and then leave and that just that that, that just leaves a bad taste in your mouth when you see okay well we're still trying to accomplish the mission but now you have you know a small fraction of the forces that you had before when you were struggling to to complete the mission and it just it, it just makes it worse so it sounds like by the end of the obama administration sense they kind of knew it was over like a losing battle they just slowly let the fire burn out well they knew in 2004 if you look at the uh the afghanistan papers if i'm not mistaken kyle you're you might be a little more red on on that than me but it was the afghanistan papers that pointed out that Pretty much in 2004, we realized that uh, turning away from Afghanistan so quickly and focusing on nation building a uh, in a country that doesn't really have a national identity was a lost cause. In terms of it being a lost cause and how much of a disaster I guess it was, if you could go back in time or if you could, if you were in position of power, what would you have done differently? What would you have changed? I think I would have ended the war in early 2002. I would yeah. uh, go in, uh, mess up whatever terrorists were in there, which we did. Uh, we did that very well. Um, we, a lot of those guys that we recruited into the militias, the special forces recruited into the militias, were very much anti-Taliban. Um, if you're going to take out the people that harbored, the people that did 9-11, then yeah, I guess you did a good job of doing that by 2002. And then what you do is you put everybody back on a plane and you go back home and you say, don't do it again <laughs> because you saw how fast you got absolutely destroyed. Like, cause the United States is very good at killing people, uh, not very good at building nations. So that's what I would do. Yeah. Or let me ask a different one. So it seems like America has a history of trying to put in new governments they want, and it seems to consistently fail. Is there a possible way to succeed if you see a country that's, or do you just let them go through this civil war and, I guess heal. 
Stop trying to prop up other people's governments. It's it's that simple. Um, as much as we may have a vested interest in the outcome, we we, we can't control the process. And uh, we have found that getting involved in Afghanistan is the shiny example, right? Getting involved in the political process and essentially manipulating how things are going to go has not worked out in our favor. And so the best recourse, like Kyle said, you go in, you kill everything that moves that we're supposed to kill, and then you leave and you let them know this is what can happen if you do it again. It actually worked out pretty well in Desert Storm in 1991. We rolled in the Iraqi army or the Iraqi military was the premier military of the Middle East and we demolished them very easily. And then we left and then nothing happened again. And then you had other outside factors that resulted in us going back to Iraq. But they didn't try to annex Kuwait or you know gain any more ground here or there because they understood if they tried to do something, they, they were familiar with the consequences for the actions. Had we gone into Afghanistan, steamrolled it like we like we literally did, you know, eliminated the Al-Qaeda threat, eliminated the Taliban government, and then left and left it to the Afghan people to determine how they would govern themselves, we would be in a much better place. Yeah, I think I think Al Qaeda kind of kind of wrote a self fulfilling prophecy that the U.S. has just walked into time and time again. The more the more we involve ourselves with these uh, these internal struggles of of countries, especially in the Middle East, the the greater their uh, their their recruit <laughs> their recruiting numbers are. I mean, it, if if we're the the great Satan that's coming over to you know attack the 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 pure Islamic you know you know uh, people, then if we're not going over and attacking them, then those those uh, sentiments will kind of die out eventually. Gotcha. Okay. Something different that I feel like is on everyone's mind nowadays, and since we can only affect today and I guess tomorrow. What would you guys think about Ukraine and like what's going on now since that's the latest threat? Well, uh, I mean, y- Ukraine has a has a sovereign right to defend itself against any aggressor. I mean, that's the way I view it. Um, should the United States get involved in that? Uh, my experience says no. But um, you know, they they have they have a right to do it, and um, I wish them best of luck, honestly, and and I think. Putin is an absolute dictator. Uh, my wife's Russian, just full disclosure. Um, she's straight from straight from Moscow several years ago. She's an American citizen now, but um, they hate Putin too. So, I mean, his, his time's up. So um, no one likes a dictator, and Ukraine has a right to do whatever they feel necessary to repel him. And um, I just don't think the United States should be involved in it. Yeah, I, I think short of, um, I, I did see today that, the, the Russian military has started dropping ordinances about 12 miles from the, the Poland border. Um, like short of Russia attacking a NATO member, which would trigger the, the NATO treaty. I, I agree with Kyle. I'm all for helping, helping out the, the, the military Ukraine to, to defend themselves because they were a nonviolent neighbor who has been, uh, you know, uh, unnecessarily attacked by another neighbor uh and and, 
you know, when you look at just the, the, the simple concept of self-defense, they have every right to self-defense. We, we actually had uh, somebody on a couple weeks ago who uh, he was in the military intelligence field like we are, happened to be born in Ukraine back in the 80s and moved to the States uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. Right. And we, we had him on to kind of help uh, just kind of characterize this stuff. And it's, it's I, I think it's very clear that despite the Ukrainian government still being relatively corrupt, um, as well as the Russian government being relatively corrupt, they were a, a, a non-threatening neighbor. And um, I, I think Putin's uh, actions moving into Ukraine are, I mean, they're, they're unjustified and they're unwarranted. And I mean, we'll see what happens from there. But if there's if there's an attack on Poland or another NATO member, then that would obviously trigger the, the, the NATO treaty and, you know, all bets would be off the table moving forward. What throws me in a bit of a loop with this Ukraine-Russia situation happening is I've talked to two people. One person who um, speaks to the prime ministers and presidents. He's spoken to over 70 countries and he spoke with Vladimir Putin himself. Him and this other person who does rhetoric, he spoke with the senator and a house member in the U.S. The common theme that they tell me is that there's no such thing as bad politicians except for like two. And even he told me this was before this whole Ukraine situation happened. And he told me Putin even is kind of he's doing what he believes is best. He's doing he cares about the people. He cares about this stuff. And I want to listen and say, hey, that's kind of good then, right? But then you see actions like this, and it makes me sort of disagree with those people that told me this. Like, how can a politician fully believe what they're doing is right and then say, like, start a war or start this or start that? I think Putin would have been remembered as a very effective and decent Russian leader if he had stepped down about 12 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But he's gone full dictator. He's removed anybody and that could ever question him, so... But, you know, whatever he says goes now. Um, so that's just he's he's outlived his uh, effectiveness. You know? Yeah, it, from from our experiences, at least as it retains as it pertains, excuse me, to you know U.S. military policy, or um, there are very few actual good politicians. Um, I, I listened to a, a, a podcast. It's hosted by a man who was a congressional staffer for two different members of Congress, and he equated our our our, uh, our political class as essentially uh, used cars salesmen, used car salesmen who are good at getting elected. And I'm sure that is not unique to the United States. Um, right? When we look at Putin and and what he will be remembered for, I I think he has, I mean, he's very clearly done significant damage to his legacy. I agree with Kyle. He was like, you know, like like Boris Yeltsin was the first, was was, you know the the president of Russia at the end of the nineties, but really Putin, I think, is is more so considered like the real, truly first post Soviet president of Russia, and you know. If after 2008, he's done and Medvedev is president and they move forward from there, he is remembered much differently when you look at how Russia expanded from an, econ- you know, from an economic standpoint and opened up those relations with the West. And now I, I, it, it's really hard to quantify what, what he's trying to accomplish. 
uh, outside of he doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO. But everybody, anybody who pays attention to what's going on understands that Ukraine's not joining NATO anytime soon, not even close to doing so. So you can't really use that for a justification for the actions that he's taken to this point. Yeah, when it when it when it comes to when it comes down to politicians, um, the the old adage rings true. You know, if they want the job, they're probably not the <laughs> the person that you'd want to have that job. We're just about coming towards the hour mark. So speaking with politicians and something about the Afghanistan war that I want to bring it back to is the name came up Rumsfeld. What was his position? Who was he, and what impact did he have? Old Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah, I mean, he was George W. Bush's uh, Secretary of Defense. So, I mean, he had a lot of say in the initial invasion of um, Afghanistan, particularly Iraq, I think, is what he's really known for uh, and his and people's hatred for Rumsfeld for the Iraq invasion. Um, Rumsfeld, Cheney, Bush Jr. I mean, I mean I, I'd try them all in the Hague if I could, but... I don't think they're going to let me. So, uh, yeah, he, he was he was basically uh, George W. Bush's uh, Secretary of Defense, and and responsible architect, kind of 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 these, you know, forever wars that we got involved in. So that's why he's hated, at least by most people. Is there a particular few things he did, or was it just he was the continuous sort of man behind continuing these wars? So when you look at um, the last year, roughly. Uh, we have been, well, let me, let me backtrack. I have been highly critical of our current Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, uh, in large part because my first duty station at 18th Airborne Corps, he was our Corps commander. And and, and I thought he, he did an outstanding job, right, controlling or, you know, you know, managing four infantry divisions. And then when I would deploy to Iraq, he was the uh, U.S. Forces Iraq commander. And I thought he did a really good job in in managing that drawdown because we were the last unit in Iraq during you know Operation New Dawn, which was the end of the war in Iraq before ISIS rolled around. Um, and so he becomes Secretary of Defense, and I, somebody who worked for him and who has talked to him and briefed him, was very optimistic with that with that appointment or with that nomination. And then to see everything that happened. Uh, in August with Afghanistan, it falls on SecDef. It falls on Secretary Austin. So when you look at all the issues that uh, have sprung up from Iraq and Afghanistan during the, the George Bush years, it has to fall on Donald Rumsfeld. And, and, and it, it's not, it's not partisan politics. The, the three of us are, we, we do not align on, certain things we align on some uh it is a it's just the sheer fact of this is the guy who was running the show and he made bad decisions and so he gets the blame and that's just the way it works right and and that's how it should work donald rumsfeld was in charge donald rumsfeld uh denied the taliban uh option or offer for an ultimate surrender and then was overrunning the DOD, Department of Defense, for you know at least the first Bush presidency. I don't remember when Gates uh, showed up, but yeah, he oh, he does take blame for it. He 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 does deserve blame for it. Yeah, yeah, I I 
I'd say on top of that, that, uh, you know, he, he kicked things off, but, uh, but there, there were, there were a lot of other, <laughs> a lot of other people that kept it kept it rolling for a long time. So there's plenty of blame to go around, but he, he, he gets, he gets his share. That's for sure. Yeah. And that's what we've always harped on is accountability. I mean, in this, in this podcast, we just, we just want accountability. Like how can the people in charge of losing the wars and, and making all these bad decisions constantly get promoted to positions higher up than where they started from, you know, uh, or, you know, positions that pay them a lot of money or people that rely on them for expertise when they've done nothing but fail essentially. And, uh, and that's frustrating because somebody has to answer for it. I mean, there's a lot of dead people in Afghanistan you know, United States service members. There's a lot of dead Afghan civilians. There's a lot of dead Taliban guys who really didn't have much choice except to join the Taliban to begin with, you know? And it's like, there's a lot of dead people and there's no accountability in the United States for this whole fiasco. And that's that's what pisses me off. And that's what, you know, makes everybody else mad too. I think no accountability. So Rumsfeld can, <laughs> you know, there you go. It starts kind of there. I agree. And it makes sense. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second where earlier I heard the theme was a lot of people like to sort of twist the news and say, oh, it slowly gets filtered and oh, it's doing great and great. So by the time it reaches the people at the top, they think they're doing amazing. Could he have thought that the war was actually going amazing and what he was doing was this great thing? I mean... When you look at the time in which Rumsfeld was SecDef, that's, it's very possible, right? We had a lot of early successes in Afghanistan. And even if you look at Iraq, which, so, you know, Stu and Kyle never went to Iraq. And like I said earlier, that was my, my one deployment. Granted, it was the tail end, but it's where I did deploy. There were a lot of early successes in Iraq as well. So it's not outside the realm of possibility that, that you know, Secretary Rumsfeld looked at it and saw a lot of good things happening and i i will uh oh what's the opposite of preface post face i'll post face that with uh the three of us are in the military intelligence field and we very rarely speak in absolutes so like we look at probabilities and possibilities right and so i would say that you know it's 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 certainly probable if and, and possible that rumsfeld saw a quick immediate successes and that's what he used for his decision-making matrix moving forward. And I'll, I'll, I'll also post-face that with a lot of uh, a lot of his and uh, Dick Cheney's buddies uh, uh, made many hundreds of millions of dollars off of both. These yes, guys. they did. <clears throat> yeah, a lot of money. Yeah, there's some of that corruption people mention. A lot, lot. A lot, lot. Yeah, they they had to. They, there was a there was a whole thing in the mid 2000s where um cheney got in trouble because they were being um so very selective with who were granted uh contracts in the in the u.s government specifically for the different uh, wars that we were fighting and they, they had to open that up because they were they were essentially giving them to their buddies so wow yeah all right well I think that's a good sinister note to end it on. <laughs> <laughs> Stu, Sick, and Cal from the Boardwalk Podcast. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having, thanks us. For having us. Yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Lastly, is there a final message you guys would like to tell the audience? Uh, don't trust your government.
<laughs> they're all they're all bad they're all bad people they're yeah, most of them are weird perverts and uh, they they don't have your best interests at heart <laughs> no i mean i mean like as funny as that is that's a very good point right like i i know like, we did some research and like, you're up in the new england area a lot of college age students are the are the demographic um yeah stop stop uh Stop worshiping politicians and focus more on the ideals. I have found almost no politicians who I can align myself with 100%. In fact, literally zero that I can align myself with 100%. But I can focus on individual ideals from individual politicians. And and if you can apply that to things like the war effort, which we can. We, we, um, we have talked before about like Tulsi Gabbard who – we we think is was spot on about Iraq. I think she's terribly wrong about Ukraine and Russia, right? But you could you could take certain things from from individual politicians, right? Don't check for what's in in what you know what letters in parentheses next to their name. Look at what they actually stand for. Look at how they vote, and, and look at what they you know look at what it is that they're doing. It, it, and you're going to come out a much better human being. War is messy and almost always unnecessary. Yes. That's uh, that's the thing. This has been The Way Podcast on FM 91.7, WHU Stores at the top of the hour, and also 90.3 WRIU South Kingston at the top of the hour. To see their podcast, The Boardwalk Podcast, and more information about it, you'll see links in the description. If you're tuning through the radio, I recommend you check out the podcast. So there's a lot more content. Be sure to follow on Twitter, Instagram at PodcastTheWay. All this information is at PodcastTheWay.com. Share, give a five-star rating, like, review. Every little bit does make a big difference. Thank you. I appreciate it. Any information, PodcastTheWay.com. And as always, deuces. This has been The Way Podcast. If you want to know more about The Way Podcast, go to podcasttheway.com.